attention to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to actually look at two passages, but we're going to, um, I'm going to begin by reading from Deuteronomy 6, and all these passages are in the order of worship. I, I've got to get two things off my chest before we go any further. Dan Dillard, I'm so sorry I forgot your name. Where are you? I just, okay, I, I, I hope I will never do that again. And uh, I don't ever want to be a pastor that doesn't know your name. So sorry for that. And um, remembering and forgetting is a theme of Deuteronomy, so maybe this was fitting. I I don't know. The other thing is that uh, Jake Patton and I do not coordinate our wardrobes (laughs) on Sundays, but one could think that we do from this morning. And I just want to go public and say, wait, we don't do that because that, that would be weird. (laughs) And just want to broach that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 4. As we're going to this passage, something to think about. There have been, and probably still are, residents of Greenville who, when they began their day, literally when their eyes opened and they woke up, they said or say the first verse that we're going to look at. And it may be the last thing that they say when they go to sleep at night. Um, This passage that we're about to look at, and and we'll unpack this in a little bit, is called the Shema. And it is just at the very heart, uh, still to this day, of Judaism. But this is from God's Word. And we're coming as Christians as we're studying through Deuteronomy. And we've come to this passage Here's the amazing thing that I hope we're going to see is that as you come to Deuteronomy 6, Moses, and remember, this is uh, at the end of the time in the wilderness. They haven't crossed the Jordan River. They're just about to. This is a giant recap of who they are and who God is and what they've seen and what they must remember as they take the promised land. That's the book of Deuteronomy. As Moses is is, uh, speaking to the people of God, He says, look, here is the unique thing that we believe. And we could call that orthodoxy. And then he speaks about, here is how you must flesh it out. And, you know, the the, the big word for that is orthopraxy. What you believe, orthodoxy, how you live it, how you flesh it out. Orthopraxy, right practice. But in between saying those things is a something else. And here's the amazing thing. This something else is so important that over a thousand years after these words were first heard, when Jesus Christ was asked in a crowd, what is the most important commandment? And I think the tally is 613 commands in the Hebrew Bible. Of all those commands, which one is the most important? And when Jesus put his finger on number one, he cited this passage and he cites the something else. He says this is the main thing God's people must remember. So as we hear this, here's here's the prayer, is that we're not just hearing this as an Old Testament story, but that in this text is the very thing that we desperately need. And it may be that this morning, that something, when you think about your spiritual life or what are our problems in our spiritual lives 
or what would I love to change about me spiritually, that really what we're thinking about more are symptoms. And that this is the text that speaks of the real disease, the real cancer that yields the symptoms. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we cannot make ourselves obey you as we should. We cannot make ourselves love you as we should. But you can change us. You can go into our heart of hearts and do things that we couldn't imagine. You can change our thinking and our feeling and our will. And all of us need you to do so. So, Father, please use your word to that end for your glory and for our great good. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. A book that came out... um, I think about 20 years ago, by a Christian counselor, Christian writer named Larry Crabb. It's called Connecting. Uh, it's about relationships, as you would imagine. And he, uh, the, in the first chapter of this book, Larry Crabb describes something that happened between him and his oldest son named Kep. Now, he, first off, what he describes is he's speaking at a conference, and he's, he's the main keynote speaker, and it's a conference over several days. And he said he just felt like it was going well, and he's hitting his stride, and people are responding well, and he's talking about what God's Word is doing in their lives, and he's kind of hitting on all, all cylinders. And uh, his coworker called him after the talk, and, and normally after this talk, they would step out and get a bite to eat, and his, um, his coworker grabs him and says, we need to go back to the room. He says, why do we need to go back to the room? He says, I need to tell you something. So he knows there's something wrong. His friend sits down with him, co-worker, and says, Kep was just expelled from college. As a junior in a Christian college, just expelled. So uh, Crab, I call him Crab. Uh, Larry Crab has one more day of, of speaking, and he knew that his son had already been expelled, so he had to finish his commitment. He had to speak the next day on parenting. Ugh. Got through that, gets on a plane, gets to his wife. They weep, and they get in the car, and, uh, and they drive to their son about an hour and a half from their home to uh, his college. Now, here's what he says about parenting, Kip. He says, no parent, speaking about himself, he says, no parent worked harder to do it right. Prayers every night, stories with a Christian point before they went to sleep. Uh, He had more than one child. Saturdays given over to swim meets, afternoons to basketball games and karate lessons, annual father-son birthday meals, 
at the restaurant of his choice. Uh, when I asked each boy the same 12 questions, recorded his answers, and discussed them at the next year's birthday meal as a way of exploring development. You know, you should, when you're reading this as a parent, you're going, man, like, I think I better tighten up. <laughs> a special 13th birthday trip with each son uh, to introduce him to adolescence and go back to that spot years later. Uh, and, and he goes on to say that there were fun times and, and, and the, the discipline in the home was consistent. And if someone got a spanking, there's hugs afterward and reassurances. And we pray together and we make sure we're back on the same page. So just kind of like, I, I, I did... I mean, he's an expert on it. He talks to people about counseling. He was speaking at a conference about parenting. And his son just, from 14 on, became increasingly rebellious. And he, he said, he gets to the college and he walks into his son's room and he said, just, these are my words, not his, but God showed up. Because what had never happened was rather than come with an explanation or the rebuke or the biblical lesson or here's the biblical thing you didn't remember. Um, Kep's father walked in and said, how can I help? And he said that, that really for them, that moment was like a game changer. And, and here, here's the amazing thing, is that for all his dad's efforts to do the right thing, and I think we would say, and he was doing great stuff. It's not like, yeah, but secretly... There was this, you know, cruel edge to it. I mean, he really was doing the great stuff that a Christian parent ought to be doing. But his son was increasingly moving toward rebellion. And what he goes on to say is that it was that moment where for all the good stuff that my son was getting from me, that we started connecting. That there really was a felt sense of deep connection. Now, there's a part of me that doesn't even want to use this term because it could sound more therapeutic than, than maybe biblical. But I'm going to risk it and use the term that you can believe that every good thing that you have is from God and that God is real, He's really there, He's really who He says He is in the Bible, He's able to do whatever He purposes to do, no one can thwart them. He's the source of every gift. You can know that and believe it. And even know that you ought to love Him. And still not love Him. And we use that word love so much that here's, here's how I want to... Um, let's think of this term. For all that you believe about Him, you can still lack a deep, connection with Him. Where at the end of the day, you know that whatever happens, I know that not only is He for me, and that He loves me, but even in my imperfect, frail little way, I love Him. I don't love Him like He loves me, but I know I love Him. I can believe the right things and even do a lot of the right things and not love Him. And here's the reality, and this is all through the Bible, 
from Genesis, as I've heard somebody say, from Genesis to maps, is that if you do not truly love Him, obedience will start to fall apart because it's built on something else. What are we learning about the people of God in this passage? Now, I want to look at a few things. But, and, and again, when you think about the people of God, don't just think Israel or the Jews. I want you to think about Old and New Testament, the people of God. Old and New Testament, the covenant people like us. Let's, let's look at this. First off, His people's identity, and then His people's heart, and then His people's hope. Okay? His people's identity, His people's heart, and His people's hope. First off, their identity. Now, I said this at the beginning, but this text, Deuteronomy 6, has been called, from a Christian's point of view, this is like the John 3.16 of Judaism. The first word is, it became the name of this text. The Hebrew word for hear, or you could translate it listen, or listen up, is shema. And this text, along with a part of Deuteronomy 11 and a section from the book of Numbers, is still to this day called the Shema. And what is it saying? Moses is saying, not just, okay, here. He's saying, listen up. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He is one. Now, there's your orthodoxy. There's your right belief, your right theology. It's saying, look, in contrast to the Egyptian world that you're coming out of, and in massive contrast to the Canaanite world that you're about to be surrounded by in the promised land. In other words, in contrast to all the religions of the world, what do you believe? And not just because we tell you to believe it, but because this is actually true. It is that the Lord is not many. The Lord is one. Yahweh is one. And that's going to be in contrast to every people group that you meet. And here's the thing. We're not just saying, hey, everybody needs to figure out what's really their one God and sort of prioritize that one God. We're not saying that. We're not saying, hey, Canaanite, out of your pantheon of gods, pick one and make that your main God. We're not saying that. We're saying that the Lord, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who delivered us from Egypt, He alone is the one true God. This, this is absolutely the irreducible core of the theology of God's people from the beginning. Um, the Shema is very likely, the, to this day, the first biblical words that are taught to a Jewish child. And still to this day, Jewish men and women and children, when they awaken, these will be the first words they say and the last words before they go to sleep. To this day, when, when Orthodox Jews, if they know that they're about to die, if they, can, if they can pull this off, the last words they utter to anyone may be the Shema. And there are multiple eyewitness accounts from the Holocaust that when men and women walked into the gas chambers, that the last thing that they ever said was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And I've, I've got to add this because I didn't know this till this past week. The, the word Shema here and the Hebrew word for one, Echad, the last, if you look in a Hebrew Bible, and I checked this out and it's true, if you look in a Hebrew Bible, the last letter of Shema and the last let, letter of Echad are bigger and bolder than all the other letters. And it's because those two letters spell the Hebrew word for witness, testimony. And this was an ancient tradition that remains to this day. It was a way of saying, the thing you're telling the rest of the world is that God is not one of many, but that the Lord is one. Irreducible core. Now, then it goes on to say this. So that's the orthodoxy. Then Moses says this. This is not something that's to be just this little section of your life. The way you're going to live as Israelites is not where there's this sacred and secular divide in your life. But all this is going to be integrated together. Look at what he says in verse 7. You shall teach them, these commands, diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And what is he saying? He's saying, look, at every level of your life, the Word of God and the commands of God have got to infiltrate for you as an individual, he talks about your hand, the frontlets between your eyes. You know, have you ever seen a phylactery? You know what that it, it refers to these in the New Testament. It's a box that an Orthodox Jew would strap to his head, and the box contains uh, te- probably from Deuteronomy and, and contains the law of God, or one that you strap to your hand. After 9-11, people from less Jewish areas... Uh, with TSA, kind of had to be told, okay, those are not bombs. When you see someone walking through with a box strapped to their head or to their hand, that's, De- that's Deuteronomy 6. Ancient practice. But you as an individual, your hand between your eyes, you as a family, when you're sitting around the dinner table, you've got to process this. When you're, when you're taking a walk together whether it's mother, daughter, or the whole family, you've got to process this just in the living of life, walking down the road. This is what we talk about. And even like at a bigger level, the whole city, it talks about you put these commands not just on the doorpost of your house, but on the gates, the gates of what? Of the whole city. The society is built around it. There is no sacred-secular divide. Now that, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right belief, right practice at all levels. That is the identity of God's people. And the hope was this, is that as you do that, these commands won't just be a code. But what's going to happen? Look in verse 6. These words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. Now, we're just coming off Valentine's Day, so let's clarify about hearts. Heart does contain... Feeling, But when you see the word heart, especially in the Hebrew Bible, it's not just talking about how I feel, although it includes that. But it's talking about the very core of your being, the very core of your identity. The identity of God's people 
is for the law of God, the Word of God, to even not just affect your behavior, but go into your heart. Now, how are we going to do that? How's that going to happen? How are people who are not naturally inclined to be told what to do, how are we going to submit in being told what to do and respond well to it? Okay, this is the something else. This is the something else that when Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing to obey? He said, this is the most important thing to obey. And it's a heart issue. And what is it? It's verse 5. You shall love. And not just obey, but you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The great thing that's going to bridge right belief and right practice as you're out in a fallen world and you're a fallen person will be, do you love Him with all your being, your heart, the intellect, the feelings, your willpower, with all your soul? And those terms have a lot of overlap. It's hard to define the soul. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Those are parallel terms. The soul is everything within me. My dreams, my aspirations, my hopes, my fantasies, my frustrations, my victories, my thinking, my feeling, everything is my soul. That's to love the Lord your God. And then the term that to me is the most interesting, it says with your might. In Hebrew, that is the word ma'od. When I was in seminary, when we would do these drills and we'd have to chant Hebrew stuff that none of us really understood... But we pretended to. And uh, if we did it well, my professor would say, Tov ma'od. Tov means good. Ma'od means very. So in Hebrew, this is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your very. I may regret this this afternoon, but here's what that made me think of. You know the movie Kung Fu Panda? which now has a spin-off TV show called Kung Fu Panda Legends of Awesomeness. And you've got this main character, this panda named Poe, whose voice is, is that of Jack Black. <clears throat> and he's training under a Kung Fu master named Master Shifu. And Jack Black sings the theme song of Kung Fu Panda Legends of Awesomeness. So it goes like this. Uh, raised in a noodle shop and never seeking glory or fame, he climbed the mountaintop and earned the dragon warrior name, Kung Fu Panda. Second verse. Master Shifu saw the warrior blossom and master the skills of bodacious and awesome. Now, I'm not a martial artist, but to my knowledge, there are no martial arts skills with the names bodacious and awesome. But it's, it's a Jack Black way of saying, taking it to the ultimate degree. Uh, when, I told, when I told my children that I might say this this morning, Henry asked, is there really a word, awesomeness? I guess, but we know what it means. And 
quite literally, in the Hebrew text, what, what God's people are being told is, you love God with the whole of your being. You love Him with your muchness, your variedness. You love Him. And here's the great thing, and this is all through the Scriptures. If you love Him, you will obey Him. Look at this other passage. This is in italics at the bottom. It's a parallel passage. Listen to how loving God is described. You sh- do you see where I am in the italics? You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Now put hold fast in bold because that Hebrew verb is the same verb that you hear at the end of Genesis 2 when the first marriage is described and it says about Adam and Eve, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and what? Hold fast to his wife. Cleave to his wife. If it's a beautiful day and we're at Falls Park and Falls Park which is on a beautiful day is the most diverse place in the upstate, I would say. And so it's just just an anthill of people. There's a kind of of person that that your eye will go straight to if you see them. If you see an elderly couple, I mean truly old, who are walking together and still holding hands, your eye will go straight to them because there's this sense of that is rare and that is good. And that not only in an abstract way have they cleaved to one another, not just for years but for decades, but physically, literally, they are still holding on to one another. And Moses is saying to the people of God, you must do that with God. You've got to hold on to Him. He will never let you go. But you must hold on to Him and love Him and cleave to Him and walk with Him. And if you do that, you'll obey. So what's the problem? Sometimes we don't love Him. Why don't we love Him? Well, it's been years on that one. And you, I think we could all give our different answers this morning. What it might sound like is this. When I needed Him, and I was hurting, I asked Him to help me. And He did not help me the way I asked. And I will never forget it. And that may be a thing that's not past tense. You may be in the thick of that right now. I'm tired of being underemployed or unemployed. And I told him, and nothing changes. I need a friend, and I told him I need a friend. And I don't have a friend that can bear my burdens with me. I don't feel right. I feel sad. I feel off. I feel worse than I've ever felt. And I told him, and it's like silence. So honestly, no, I don't love him. 
And no, I'm not signing up for the Atheist Society of America. No, I've not become an agnostic. I guess, yes, I still believe him. But do I feel close to him and feel that I can entrust myself to him? Honestly, no. I will tell you this. I think anyone in the room can relate to you on that. And I would say this too, is that that is something that is as ancient as the book of Deuteronomy. And that's over 3,000 years old. And here's the amazing thing. God, here's how incredible God is. God, who, who would have the right to say, you know what, listen, here's the deal. Uh, you were slaves in Egypt, and you could not rescue yourselves. And I brought you out. And I destroyed this army that would have crushed you in the wilderness if you had gotten out. I dispatched them. And I fed you. And I provided water. And I provided protection in the wilderness. And I'm taking you into this incredible land, but so help me. If in the face of all that, you go in there and you worship other gods, these curses that I told you would fall on you, believe me, they're going to fall on you, and that's going to be the end of it. So don't disobey. These are not the ten suggestions. These are my commandments. The end. Now, on the one hand, he does say, if you disobey, there will be curses. If you obey, there will be blessings. But does it stop there? And here's the third thing I want to look at is the hope of God's people. Because you know what? Anyone here who claims to believe what the Bible is saying should also be able to say, I have more, more than ample reason to love God and believe Him. And sometimes I don't. So what is the hope of God's people? Is the hope of God's people to be more disciplined? And yes, discipline is wonderful. But what is the great hope? Look, look at the second passage. <clears throat> this is from chapter 30, verse 4. And this is where God has said... If you disobey me, if you worship other gods, curses will fall on you. And one of the worst ones they could experience was to be exiled. After you've been a slave and you had no land, and I bring you into this beautiful land and you get these vineyards that you didn't plant, and you drink from these crisp, cool wells that you didn't dig, you even live in houses that you didn't build, if you disobey me, that will be taken from you. And you'll live in a land where you don't know the people, and they're not your people's people, and you don't know the language, and you don't know their gods, and you will feel completely out of place, and no one's going to care who you are, and they're not going to care about your Shema. And if you do that, and then when you're in that land, and you cry out to me and say, I've turned away from you, but I want to come back. God says, what will I do if you do that? Chapter 30, verse 4. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven... Now think about this. Not just if you end up in Babylon, but this is if you end up on Pluto. From there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous 
and numerous than your fathers. Now get this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, your children, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you will live. When we have infant baptisms, a text that I love to bring out is from the book of Ezekiel. And it makes a parallel claim. It's from Ezekiel 36, and God says, even though you've worshipped these other gods, even though you've been fools, look to me, and I will take clean water and I will sprinkle it on you. And I'll cleanse you from all your uncleannesses. He says, I'll cleanse you from your idols. I'll wash your idols away. He says that when I do that, then you will obey me. Why? Because you'll love me. You won't love me because I bullied you into a corner. You'll love me because you'll understand that I first loved you. When you were very unlovely, I loved you. If you think about right now, in your own life, spiritually, where you feel that you're disobeying God, what's the remedy going to be? Is the remedy going to be, then I will just dig in my heels and I will obey better? Well, at one level, yes, that's, we must do that. But this text is saying, what is up underneath our unwillingness to obey? It's not just lack of discipline. It's not just lack of sleep. It's that deep down, we don't love Him. And that this may seem counterintuitive. I don't know. But there could be nothing better than for us, even right now in your heart, or this afternoon in your closet, to get on our knees and to say, I have turned away from you. I don't just look at pornography because I am a sinner, although that is true. I look at it because deep down, it seems better than you. It energized me in the way that I felt that you did not. And so I went with it against all reason. That is the real problem. And he says, you can be way on out there in your disobedience. If you will turn to me, I will. I will circumcise your heart. I will sprinkle clean water on your heart so that even when you should have loved me and you kicked against me, you can return and I'll change your heart to love me. That's incredible. If someone has said he doesn't love our rebellion but He loves our return. He loves it. And think about with our children. The text speaks of children. If you're a parent or a guardian or a caregiver of a child, what are we modeling to our children? Are we saying, look, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother and do that. And the part we're not saying out loud is, 
because I'm tired of feeling out of control. So obey the text. I hate this feeling. Or is the issue... And I'm saying this as somebody who... We must discipline. And there's a time to say no. And, and we have to have boundaries. All those things. Just put that over all this. But do we ever ask our child, Honey, do you love the Lord your God? Because he keeps saying that he gives these commands not as a punishment and not to press you down. As we've said before, if God was a bully, we would know it. But he is giving you these because he cares about us. And that even though it may cut again, just, just be so hard the way it was hard for us when we were little, he wants us to obey because he loves us and wants it to go well for us. I mean, could we, even before we put our head on the pillow tonight, go to God and say, I see maybe why I should love you, but honestly, I haven't. Honestly, I don't. Will you circumcise my heart? We may have never said those words. Will you, will you wash my heart and turn me back towards you? And I want to end with this. It may be that as you're listening to this, you may think, well, look, okay, but if you make God out to be that way, it's like you're saying that, hey, here's Dad, and if I'm in his family, I can just, you know, freak out if I want to. And I can just kind of go off and, like, just be wild and do whatever I want to. And then if I come back, he'll run out to me and accept I want to say there's a story about that. That that is who God is. And that is the heart of real obedience to the law of God is the love of the Lord your God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, please help us Help us through your word and even help us as we come to the table that this would be all part of you being very kind to us, very long-suffering with us, showing that you are holy but you are wonderful and merciful, that you'll turn the hearts, you'll wash the hearts of people who've turned away from you. Have mercy on us. If we've never said, have mercy on me, put those words on our lips. If we've never said, I know I should love you, but I don't, help me. Give us those words. Point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, Savior for sinners. And we pray in His name. Amen.